0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, we have a special guest. We have Rich Gibson, who is running for the Howard County State's Attorney in the election that is to take place on November 6th, 2018. And he, <laughs> 2008, not a time machine. And he is a Democrat.
1: Welcome to the show, Rich. Thank you for having me. really appreciate it.
0: We have an impending election. Your opponent is Kim Oldham, who's running as a Republican. Are there things that jump out at you right away that differentiate you uh,
1: from Kim? Sure. Well, I'll start with political affiliation. Sure. Um, So there are some who argue that the position of state's attorney is apolitical, meaning that it doesn't have a political push and pull in the everyday existence of the office. Um, And while that is true, that – whether Republican or Democrat, we should all want crime to be reduced. I think that's a natural tendency for people in society that want an ordered society and a lawful society. The question that is political is how we achieve that criminal reduction or that reduction in criminal behavior. Okay. Um, and so you can look the analogy that I like to use is to compare on the federal level. So a attorney is a top law enforcement official in the county. Okay. Right? The U.S. Attorney General is the top law enforcement official, top prosecutor in the nation. Okay. All right. And if you were to compare the practices and policies and procedures of Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, who's our current, for the moment anyway, uh, U.S. Attorney General, um, with that of, say, uh, Loretta Lynch or Eric Holder, who preceded him. In the Under, Obama administration. in the Obama administration as Democrats you will see vast differences in terms of the way in which we achieve the goal of reducing crime those differences being um, for instance Jeff Sessions does not believe that prosecutors should be involved in in law enforcement oversight right? he actually he actually doesn't believe that's an important prosecutorial function. Whereas Democrats- Which is to say
0: he doesn't want them looking at police practices in individual jurisdictions.
1: Correct. Okay. Right. Which is which is the exact opposite of what Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder's policies were, which was to actually go out and look for instances where there might be problems, investigate to determine that there are problems. And if there are problems, to put into place a, a systems of agreement whereby we say, look, we recognize these problems, we're going to fix them. Um, as a matter of fact, one of those- Uh, Areas that actually was impacted by that was baltimore. I remember um, but it's happened all over the nation Okay, and so that's an important function of the prosecutor that Republicans i.e. Jeff sessions don't see as important or as Democrats do Um, The decriminalization of marijuana is another uh, where we differ Um, The the way in which cases are charged uh, differs. so under sessions he wants every criminal event that accompanies a criminal act to be charged. Okay, right? Whereas under Obama's administration, so Loretta Lynch and Eric Holder, it was it was essentially strategic charging. We're going to charge these offenses, but not these because we don't necessarily want to over criminalize the act. And by way of a, a simple example, not to go on too too long. Sure, about sure. It, but by way of a simple example, if one were to break into a car, let's say you were to steal my car right now. Okay. All right. So you steal my car. You had to break into the vehicle. So that's malicious destruction of property. Okay. One offense. You had to enter the vehicle. That's rogue and vagabond. Separate offense. You uh, had to take the vehicle from me. That's motor vehicle theft. Separate offense. Uh, The personal effects are in the car. So if my laptop's in the car, it's not. But let's say it were. Okay. Or several of my suits were in the car, and that's several thousand dollars worth of of materials. That's now felony theft that you committed because you took my personal effects along with the car when you stole it. And so... um, You can charge every single one of those offenses, or you can say, look, this can really be encompassed in motor vehicle theft. Um, The victim can be made whole. Society can be made whole, and we can incarcerate the person if necessary. um, But we don't need to necessarily cripple this individual with a a rap sheet that's going to follow them forever. Because the goal, in my opinion, as a Democrat, is to not only punish criminal events, but to also find ways to in, to reintegrate those that have committed criminal offenses back into a lawful society. So is there some theoretical benefit to the Republican model? I don't agree with the Republican model okay. because I am a Democrat sure. um, in my values. And I think your values impact your decision-making ability. I think that the Republican model certainly is forceful uh, and I personally just don't think you could, like. I'll look at the war on drugs, for instance. Sure. Right. I just think it's a failed. I believe firmly that it's a failed st- strategy. You cannot incarcerate your way through this. You have to. You have to employ um, different approaches, rehabilitative focuses, in order to really curb this issue. You need to. You need to to not only attack the supply side, but also the demand side. And I think the Republican model is focused very heavily on the supply side but almost ignores the fact that there is a demand that exists in the community that we really aren't addressing. So you just end up incarcerating a lot of people. Um, and in the case of, of, of marijuana convictions, um, there's been evidence that's been generated that, that has a disproportionate impact upon black and brown communities, which as an African-American, I am sensitive to.
0: Understandably, understandably.
1: So, in essence, it sounds to
0: me like you believe that charging people appropriately is a good idea, but also finding mechanisms to reintegrate them back into the community once they've done their time or been sentenced for their crimes is something that needs to be focused on more nationally, and I presume in Howard County as well.
1: Yes. um, For instance, uh, there was a – this year – Uh, The Conference of Women Judges had a reentry event in Jessup, and I was invited to be a guest speaker. Sure. Um, So I went to the facility, and I interacted with uh, prisoners that were scheduled to be uh, released within the next, I think it was, I don't want to say it wrong, but let's just say the next six months. It might be a little longer than that. Um, And I interacted with individuals that, you know, told me they hadn't seen a prosecutor since their time in court. And when I was there, my message was, look, you've made a mistake. Um, it's not going to go away. Your opportunities are going to be limited, but you can find ways to reintegrate. And we want to encourage you to find ways to do so lawfully, because if you slip again, it's only going to be worse. And once you have the, the stain of this on you and you've made yourself a career criminal in essence, there, there is no, there is no reasonable return. And one Republican philosophy is fiscal sense. um I think Democrats also share that, but it's, I'm just being I understand. slick, I guess. But uh, the 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 it doesn't make monetary sense for us to pay forty five thousand dollars per inmate um when when you're going to end up having to have a uh, just a reentry cycle, cycle of recidivism, where they're just they're getting out and going back in. So we need to find ways to curb that. I was happy to be a part of that, and I would encourage prosecutors uh, to be a part of that. That um, the, the process of ensuring that the crime is a one-time event. So, tell us a little
0: bit about your background and how you think that your background would help you serve as Howard County State's attorney.
1: So, in terms of my background, I guess, I, I went to Howard Law, I okay. uh, graduated from Howard Law, and... Um,
0: One of my closest
1: friends in the world is
0: a Howard Law grad, former Supreme Court law clerk, a guest on this show, James E. McCullum Jr.
1: Yes, 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 yes. Um, we We... I'm very proud of of, of uh, my institution, the school, and, and its mission statement and, and producing social engineers, people that are out there trying to make a difference. I went to Howard, wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and I clerked for a judge. The judge had a mixed docket, so I saw civil and I saw criminal. Um, and the ability to see both aspects of the law kind of was eye-opening. And I realized that I was really... Um, in tune with the, the criminal process and the criminal law, and I wanted to make sure that um, I was a part of that. Um, the ability to speak, to speak on behalf of victims that have been harmed, um, the impact that a prosecutor has in making these key decisions uh, on, on not only the victims and, and society, but also on the defendant, right, really did appeal to me. I think you can make a—it's a position where, if you think about it, uh, everyone else is reacting to the prosecutor. The defense counsel is reacting to the prosecutor. The police, I can decide if the charges are brought or not. So they're all reacting to the prosecutor. The court is all reacting to the prosecutor. So it's a position where you have a lot of um, impact. And that just really appealed to me. Uh, I started prosecuting under under um, Glenn Ivy in Prince George's County. Sure. Uh, that would have been 2003, 2004. Um, and I, I uh, started off in district court where I handled – Small scale cases, uh, traffic violations, DUIs, DUIs, you bet. You know, uh, simple possession cases, minor stuff. And then um, I went to juvenile. Um, When I was promoted to juvenile, I was handling uh, cases that were committed by individuals that are underage. It ran the gambit of what would be considered a felony offense or a district court offense. Sure. But the outcomes are different, and the goal is rehabilitation versus, you know, punishment. You know, uh, it, the, the focus really is on rehabilitation for juveniles. Um, as it should be. As it should be. And then, and then I handled, um, I was then promoted to be the head of the juvenile drug court. I was a principal attorney for juvenile drug court from Truders County. We worked with an with a assigned judge, um, members of the public defender's office, uh, members of the Department of Juvenile Services. We kind of met, and it was very focused individual. This particular kid... This is his situation, this is his background, this is his family status, this is his educational status, and we're trying to tailor uh, a path for this child that we can incentivize and push like carrots along the way to get them to where they need to be. Sure. Um, And so I did that. And then I was promoted to the circuit court. This is all under Glenn. Sure. Um, promoted to the circuit court where I handled home invasions, robberies. Prince George's County, very active circuit car, court. Car theft. Felony practice. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I had a good friend of mine. His name is Eric Barron. Um, he's now a delegate in Prince George's County, and he's a partner at Whiteford-Taylor-Preston, um, big firm in, sure. in the area. Sure. Oh, well. Uh, Eric was a prosecutor with me, and he said, Rich, if you really want to be good, At prosecution and you really want to um, grow in the field you've got to go to Baltimore Uh, that's where all the challenges are and that's where you can become the best and I took him um, at his word and I went to Baltimore in 2006 okay uh, started in the general trial unit uh, where I handled um, some of the same kind of cases I was handling Prince George's County carjackings uh, robberies home invasions burglaries um, victim-based crime sure and then Within a few months, I was promoted. This is under Pat Jessamy. Mm-hmm. Ms. Jessamy promoted me to um, what was called the Five Unit, which is the, the Firearms Investigation Violence Enforcement Unit. We handle cases where someone is shot at and not killed. So you're shot at, you're struck, a bullet hits you, but you don't actually die. Um, those cases present a particular degree of difficulty because many of the individuals involved in those cases uh, aren't cooperative. They might be cooperative the night of the okay. shooting, but... A year later when you're going to trial, they don't want anything to do with law enforcement. They don't want anything to do with the process.
0: They don't want to get in trouble with the person who shot them?
1: Yes. All of those those things and more. um, They don't want to be labeled as a cooperator with the the justice system. And so uh, you learn uh, to use what's called 5802.1a, which is dance hardy, which is uh, the ability to, to introduce inconsistent statements that a person has made in court versus what they said in the past.
0: Let me slow you down for one second just so our audience understands what you mean. Better. Sorry, it was a little legal. That's okay. We often speak legal too much on this show. But So what you're saying is often people immediately after they've been shot are upset about it and provide testimony that might implicate a particular defendant, and then as time goes by they maybe become a little scared about it and they don't want to be labeled. And give an inconsistent statement, and you're nonetheless allowed to utilize the first statement. I presume
1: that is correct. Okay. So under under uh, 5802.1A, um, you can introduce a statement that was made at a prior point in time that is inconsistent with with the statement that's made in court. As they're testifying, sure and so we, we we use that tool in order to put before the jury the most important part of that rule that i left out actually is that um the statement that is that is the prior incident statement the statement that's being played before the jury right comes in for the truth of the matter asserted it comes in substantively okay so the jury can decide do i believe what you're t- saying from the stand right now or do i believe the prior statement you made closer in time to when the incident occurred and they have the ability to weigh the two and decide which one makes the most sense in light of all the evidence
0: i would presume defense counsel uh, has a field day about the inconsistency
1: so you have to establish that th- that's where the the specialized skill comes in in that unit you have okay. to really become an artisan or, or an expert at uh establishing uh the the inconsistency how it's inconsistent um and you if you're doing it right you're going to layer the inconsistency throughout so you want to establish several points of, of inconsistency with the prior statement. Sure. And then you your hope is to introduce the entirety of that statement so that the jury can actually understand what's being said and weigh the, the facts and reach the right conclusion. Okay. Um
0: I what in your experience, anecdotally, how often do the juries buy the prior inconsistent statement as opposed to the testimony on the stand, or is that hard to guess?
1: That would be a very mm-hmm. hard number to give. It's a it is a very frequent occurrence. Okay. okay. Um and it depends on a lot of variables, the quality of the statement the the um the witness and how the witness is perceived uh the the level of detail there's a there's a series of variables I couldn't really spell it out for you, but the answer is frequently, but I couldn't tell you if it's seventy percent or ten or, sure, you know, percent sure. it's frequently is it? not ten percent but I could tell you seventy or sixty okay right? but it is it is a very frequent thing that they believe the statement if it's done properly.
0: Probably highly important that the police officers have a good relationship with the state's attorney's office in order to facilitate the first statement that's taken being a thorough one
1: that is ultimately helpful to the prosecution of the case. I think that the, the police involved um, have to do their job. Sure. And, you know, we, there certainly is a relationship between the police and the prosecutor's office. Um, and that relationship at times has a tension because because the police the police have a we've all the same goal but we mm-hmm. have different standards you know prosecutors have the case beyond a reasonable doubt sure whereas the police are trying to reach a probable cause standard which is significantly less and and as a result there can be some tensions there but there's always you always strive to have a collegial relationship at all sure, times sure. but it's you shouldn't be overly friendly just you know cooperative
0: got to have some distance have but to have, you have to cooperate
1: yes a measured distance but a collegial Um, interaction okay right Um, so I was in I was in uh, that unit five unit, five unit for a year I also handled project exile cases with the federal government during that time What's a project
0: exile case so briefly
1: for individuals that are prohibited persons so um, it's gonna get very esoteric okay Uh, for for individuals that are prohibited prohibited from owning a firearm or possessing a firearm due to prior crimes gotcha They aren't allowed to have a gun at all in normal parlance. They're not allowed to have a gun at all. And if they have a gun after they've already been convicted of a crime that would disqualify them from having a gun, they're eligible for us to prosecute them federally. At the time I was doing it, the laws were a little different. So um, Public Safety Article 5133... Uh, at the time was a maximum of five years without possibility of parole and a minimum of five years without possibility of parole. And so because of that, the maximum and minimums are the same. There's very little incentive to plea. And so most of those cases were trials. And so you're you're using your federal leverage to kind of um, move those matters forward. Um, the laws have since changed now. That the violation of public safety article 5133C or 5133 is uh, – 15 first five without so there's there's now so there's incentives to play yes so that the the laws have changed to create uh state incentives to play but in the past that didn't exist um i was there for i was in that unit for a year and then in 2007 i was promoted to homicide okay uh, we were handling cases where someone's life was unjustly taken from them and and killed they're very serious cases i was there from 07 to 2012 okay um and i handled approximately 30 had approximately 30 trials I can't tell you how many actual cases probably sure. in the range of 70 or so homicides it's a lot
0: of homicides um, Baltimore has a significant problem
1: it does um, it does and then um, in 2012 Greg Bernstein took over the office he created a unit called the major investigations unit that unit um, is focused on on organizational crime and being proactive, so we're gonna we're gonna use proactive strategies to identify who's gonna commit the crime. We're gonna work with federal, state, and local law enforcement. So we're partnered across the board with with every asset the law enforcement community has, um, and we are going after the individuals that are engines of violence that are driving the crime in the community. And we're also going after organizations, so drug trade organizations, human trafficking organizations. Uh, gangs. We're going after those kind of entities as well as individuals that are injured of violence, as I said before. And he chose senior attorneys from various disciplines. So it's an interdisciplinary unit. We don't handle one type of case. We handle drug cases. We handle human trafficking cases, I said. Gang cases. Um, robberies, if it's like a series of robberies. Sure. Um, carjackings, if it's a series of carjackings. Any any kind of organized, you know, organized activity. I had a case where a group of individuals came together and um, robbed a pharmaceutical truck of opioids. And it was a, it was a very planned and orchestrated uh, matter that ended up taking a trial, and we were lucky enough to get a positive outcome. Um, but it's those kind of cases that we deal with. Um, another case that's a good example is the Kenneth Jones uh, gang case. He was a hitman for the Black Gorilla family, which is a, a gang that's all over the state. And he was someone who the gang was leaning on. He was, he was an entity that propped the gang up because if they needed someone killed, not everyone. Some people can kill one time. Not everyone is a killer, where yeah. they're going to just kill repetitively. He was that kind of individual. Okay. And so, we we handled him um, appropriately, um, and it was a lengthy trial. It was about a month and a half of trial, um, but at the conclusion he was found guilty, and uh, he's serving a very lengthy sentence. Um, so those are the kind of cases that we handle in major investigations under. So I was was an attorney in that unit, and then under Marilyn Mosby, I was again promoted, and now I'm a supervisor in that unit. So I supervise a team of attorneys that perform in that same function.
0: It sounds as though you have had a fascinating and very diverse career working in conjunction with the local authorities and national authorities, Mm -hmm. and that that would be of great value Mm -hmm. to us in Howard County. Absolutely. What do you perceive are the major problems in Howard County that need to be addressed in the criminal justice system?
1: So I think one of the major, major issues that we are going to face, uh, and we are facing, is the opioid epidemic. Okay. It is something that is spread across the nation and is certainly impacting families in Howard County. It is a tragic circumstance where people are um, using drugs that are highly lethal. You're talking about fentanyl, carfentanil. These things are, are m- these are synthetic opioids that are... Very powerful. One-time use equals addiction, and can equal death. So one-time could could be literally too much. Um, I think that my strategy for dealing with that the opioid epidemic in Howard County is to take a three-pronged approach. Okay. The first is education and outreach to our youth. I think that you have to deal with, it, as I said before, the supply and demand side of crime. If you teach kids. Right, go into the schools, go to the community centers, go into places where children gather, go to our churches, partner with with groups, uh, and teach the kids. Look, that that this is incredibly lethal. It's incredibly addicting. A single bad choice can can alter the course of your existence. That's an important message that we have to send. We can't ignore it. We can't think that our kid won't become susceptible to this because it. it there's no race. There's no color. There's no sexual orientation. No wealth boundaries to this. Right. So we focus on. Uh, education with our youth, for those that are suffering with addiction, right, we incentivize rehabilitation. So we say, look, there are a lot of collateral consequences, as I mentioned before, to a conviction. Sure. It, it limits your ability to get business loans. It limits your ability to get student loans. It limits your ability to get housing. It limits your ability to get jobs. Uh, and so rather than constrain you and limit your, your possibility for success and really limit you to being stuck in an underclass that we don't want to create as a society, Sure. I'm going to incentivize your positive behavior and say, look, if you complete rehabilitation and you stay clean, we'll put this case in the STET docket, in an active docket, and it will go away if you just complete this. So you won't have the conviction on your record. So
0: just so I understand, somebody who is criminally charged in some way with something associated with opioids, that the idea would be to have some sort of pre-sentencing program that would enable to, them to become rehabilitated and to demonstrate it. And then as a result, the charges would be effectively dismissed.
1: Is yeah. that accurate? That, that, that is accurate. I'm talking, I'm talking about people that are possessing. I understand. As opposed understand. to dispensing. Sure, sure. Right. Um, but for those that are possessing, I do think that these are people who are suffering from addiction. And we need to find ways to not criminalize that, but rather to help them get back on a lawful path.
0: And I would right? think that that – goes outside to opioids too that there's a lot of other things absolutely that people are criminalized but they're effectively addicts and in many instances they're even selling the drugs just so they can afford
1: the drugs that they want too well, i i would agree now there are some offenses that an, an addict would commit that are violent. Sure. And so in that circumstance, it's going to be treated differently. But for, I'm talking about a nonviolent circumstance. Agreed. I think that, that we have to find ways to decriminalize that. I think it should apply both to adults and juveniles, right? I think that we need to find ways to decriminalize and encourage positive behaviors via incentive. And if you complete this task, you won't have the weight of this conviction on your back. And the third prong of my strategy for dealing with the opioid epidemic is going to be to attack the supply side. So for those that are dispensing narcotics that are opioids, right? If you're dispensing them, especially if it's fentanyl or carfentanyl, we are going to treat that very seriously, right? Because that way we're attacking supply and demand and we're doing so in a way that I think would encourage kids to not take it at all, encourage those that are that are currently addicted to not be addicted, And really coming down hard on those that are trying to dispense those drugs in the community to harm us and harm the people that we love. My concern
0: often with these things, and I've had a lot of politicians on to talking about this, and everybody's worried about the opioid epidemic. I mean, we live in the second wealthiest county in the United States, and yet there's people whose lives are miserable. Mm -hmm. Is that... I don't know that there are existing societal resources, Howard County, anywhere else to help people battle addiction and to undertake rehabilitation. I think it should always be the goal with these things. I'm just wondering if there's some mechanism to put more resources on the table for disadvantaged people who kind of fall into this. And if you had any suggestions regarding that.
1: Sure. So I I think that we certainly want to, there are definite, to your point, advantages to keeping people in in house because the the and when i say in house in our community sure. a lot of stuff a lot of the services are frequently outsourced there's a, a entity called right turn sure um that helps people suffering from addiction but there we need to establish something that's in the community and the reason why there's an advantage to having it in our community is because People that care about you should have access to you, readily available access to you. You want to see you.
0: your kids. You yes. want to see your yes. spouse, your mom, your yes. dad.
1: And we should make that as convenient as possible because hopefully those individuals aren't triggers for your addiction, but sure. are rather entities that can draw you from that path to something positive. If there's a problem with if there's a, if there's a problem that's an at home problem, that's a different circumstance sure, sure. that we have to look at a little differently. But generally speaking, I would think that m- most families are trying to get their 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 person who's suffering from addiction in their family off of that path, and so they could be a positive um, source of inspiration for uh, those individuals. And so, to answer your question, I believe that. I would support, and one of the roles of the state's attorney is to, is to lobby for the change that we want, to sure, be a voice sure. in Annapolis. I've gone and testified on bills before down in Annapolis when I, it was related to firearms, but I testified on a bill because there was a hole in the law. There was a vacuum that was there that we needed to fill, and I, I attempted to address it, and the bill was passed, so it'll be- Success. A, yeah, so it'll be, it'll be addressed. I would, I would continue to do that at the local level in front of the county council and in Annapolis um, if I'm lucky enough to be elected in November. Do you anticipate a blue wave in November? I do. I okay. do. I think that um, right. Howard County is a community that um, we have a lot of people that are progressive and democratic that are here. I believe that um, that the national politics have offended people uh, to the point where they are ready to act. I feel that um, that. The aspects of the community that have been sleepy, let's say, and have not been as as energized to vote are going to be energized because they they are seeing firsthand what can go wrong when we don't take action. Um, I don't know if the blue wave is going to carry every Democrat to success, and I would never bank on that. Sure, But I believe that the Democratic candidates are out there fighting hard to win the support of the electorate. And I believe that our values are consistent with the community's values. And so I believe that there will be a blue wave in Howard County and in our nation.
0: And presumably the blue wave will be of assistance to you and you will be the next state's attorney for Howard County.
1: That is certainly my hope. Um, but I, I want to be really clear that that my goal would be to serve every people that vote for me, and people that don't. My goal, if elected, is going to be to serve this community to really make the changes that I think we need to be more proactive and involved in the community. State um, Attorney's Office has been sort of... Um,
0: Here in our county.
1: In our county, State Attorney's Office has been sort of cloistered. It hasn't been as 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 involved as it could be. There's There's room for growth there. I think things are good generally, but they can be better. If my daughter... You know, my daughter comes home and says, Daddy, you know, I got uh, 89 in a test. My first comment is great job, sweetheart. And now my next comment is let's see what you did wrong so we can make sure it's 100 next time. And I think that's the approach that I would take to governance if elected in November.
0: I'd like to thank you very much, Rich, and I wish you the best of luck in the election November 6th, 2018. All listeners, make sure you get out and vote. You got to exercise your franchise or you're not allowed to complain afterwards. This is Bob Clark. This has been Everyday Law. Thank you and farewell.